to Counsel the Word, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. I'm your host, Keith Palmer, and today we're going to be talking about Romans 8.28 and biblical counseling. I'm thankful for many brother pastor friends that the Lord has blessed me with, and really our, our whole ministry here. And one of those dear brothers is Pastor Jason Cruz from Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth. Jason is the senior associate pastor. He's also ACBC certified and serves on their counseling team. And he is a, uh, a well-respected uh, contributor to CBCD in terms of our teaching and our blogs and whatnot. So Jason, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Keith. So we're talking about Romans 8.28 uh, today, and we want to do a couple of things in highlighting this particular text. Uh, probably many of our counselors that are listening and, and those that maybe aren't biblical counselors yet, but they've had some training, have read about or heard a lecture on the importance of Romans 8.28 in the context of formal biblical counseling. Uh, so we want to talk about it you know, because of that reality. But but also, um, as biblical counselors, it's good to remember that we're counseling from the argument of the text, from the message of the text. We're not just making stuff up. We're not just throwing Bible verses uh, at various issues. We really want to rightly divide the word of truth and then minister it wisely and particularly in love and grace and wisdom to a particular counselee in his or her unique situation. So I'm so excited, Jason, to do this with a, a popular text. So why would you say that Romans 8.28 is one of those critical texts for counseling? Yeah, I would say there's, there's at least a couple of reasons for that, Keith. One is it, it's popular generally. Uh, so it's not unusual uh, for someone to pretty quickly minister this truth in a situation where things seem difficult. And you just want to reassure someone, you know, look, this is all going to work out. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we probably all have heard that many times. And so it's going to be one of the first uh, that a counselor is going to reach for in any number of situations. Um, now we can probably talk a little bit about how that can be done well and sometimes how it can be misused and misapplied. Um, but positively, uh, beyond just its popularity, uh, this is part of a key argument that Paul makes in maybe his key book, uh, in scripture, the book of Romans. Uh, and it, it speaks to issues. And so a lot of times it is appropriately being used in difficult situations where, where an important promise, uh, reminder to trust God in this needs to be brought to bear. So there's good reason for this to be an important text in counseling. Yeah, those are good reminders that Romans 8 is, is sort of the peak of the mountain in, in the, the Alps of Romans. And you're right. It is uh, a, a highlight and a, an important part of his argument there. So um, before we kind of break it down in terms of what it means and how it fits into counseling, maybe you could tell us how and why Romans 8.28 is often misused in personal ministry and biblical counseling. Yeah, one of the things you alluded to a moment ago, uh, just in terms of the priority we place on making sure that we're ministering a text according to its authorially intended purpose, what the author meant when he wrote it. And one of the key things here is what does good mean? And let me just go ahead and quote the text in full from the Legacy Standard Bible here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, and so one way of coming at this, and probably it is all too often come at this way, 
is whatever your definition of good is, is what's going to come about through this. So don't worry. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And so this may seem down for a minute, but you're going to be healthy and happy and, and wealthy tomorrow because that's what God wants for you. God works everything out that way. So that's, that's a way to misuse it and sort of in keeping with that, you know, um, uh, taking it a little bit further in terms of theological argumentation, it can be easy to make the mistake of Job's friends with this, uh, taking another part of the, of the verse here. If you love God enough, you're going to have a, a happy and pain free life. And so if you're not loving God, you need to repent of that. And then you're going to have a happy and pain-free life. Uh, so those would be some ways in which this, this can be misused. Yeah, and you think how sad it is when a person misinterprets the Bible in those ways or other ways, setting up a counselee to, to go from, you know, discouraged wherever they're at today to even, you know, worse, uh, even hopeless, as they don't realize, you know, a health and wealth misinterpretation, a self-defined good Rather than letting God define what good means in His Word, and and that those who love God is not a a qualification in terms of I have to love God a certain amount and then I'll get that personally defined good, right? So, right. yeah, what a heartbreak when that happens. So, so help us then to rightly divide this text. What, what's the key to rightly understanding how you believe this text should be used in counseling? Yeah, you know, something I do, Keith, and I don't necessarily do this in every session where I would bring this truth to bear. That's probably going to depend somewhat on how much of a habit I've been in with this particular counselee or disciplee of, of showing them how to interpret a scripture in its context. Uh, but say I'm coming in fairly fresh with that, and I think, you know, this person probably doesn't know the book of Romans at all. I'll probably set the stage a little bit and just explain how Paul uh, breaks down his argument and gives the argument, uh, starting in chapter one through the end of chapter four on how salvation, justification by faith is a free gift. And then really starting in chapter five, cementing how certain and how you can have assurance of that free gift. And, and moving into chapter six of Romans, Paul kind of, uh, ministers that assurance by way of contrasting it with two wrong ways of approaching that justification or that salvation that is by grace alone through faith alone. The first, chapter 6, is could the believer respond to that certain justification, that salvation is by faith alone, and say, okay, uh, then let me sin so that grace may abound. And chapter 6, basically the argument is, may it never be. If you have identified with Christ in his death, if you've been united with him in a death like his, then surely you've been raised to walk in newness of life with him. Uh, chapter seven addresses what is sort of the opposite error of, okay, God gets me this far and now it's bootstrap theology. It's going to be me and the law and I'm going to go ahead and do uh, what the law says and save myself the rest of the way. And, and Paul shows the futility of that in chapter seven. So you get to chapter eight and Paul is finally answering the question, okay, if it's not that one side and it's not the other extreme, then what does it look like? And the answer is a, a life of faith by which you walk in the spirit. And this is a matter of it happens for everyone who has the Holy Spirit. And Paul just sort of outlines what it looks like to walk in the spirit, to have the ministry of assurance coming from the Holy Spirit. And that's where this text is found. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the broad lay of the land in Romans getting up to this point. And I might even... Like I said, for, for some, some cases, 
give that brief explanation of what has led up to this point in the text. Yeah. No, that's really helpful to see where it fits in the flow there and how it fits into his overall argument in the book of Romans. Um, what's, what would you say is difficult about rightly understanding that text or, or maybe even frame that even more in Paul's argument? Um, what, would you, what would you add to that in terms of explaining it to a counselee? Sure. Well, there's, there's a couple of aspects of this because it can be difficult. One is, like I said, just sort of parachuting into this particular verse and not looking at the, the surrounding context for what is the definition of good. Uh, and then once you start to look at it, it's, it is kind of a difficult teaching in some ways. So, so we can do that, start to look a little bit at where this fits in the closer context of what Paul is saying. Uh, and what we find sort of looking first in the, the immediately uh, preceding verse is that Paul has been repeating a certain verb, and that is the verb to know, the Greek word aida, which was used once in verse 26 and then again in verse 27. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit knows, because he understands both our hearts and the will of God. Uh, and so this fact means that even though we are ignorant, we can be confident on the basis of the Spirit's omniscient intercession that things will work out as they should. So sort of the uh, rhetorical effect is along these lines. We don't know, but he knows, so we can know. So you see that's in keeping with Paul's major point in this section of teaching us how we can have assurance. Uh, so that's sort of the first thing to notice is that the key verb there and that the repetition of that verb, we have this ignorance, but the spirit knows all things. And so we can have this confidence that, that he is working these things out for good. Uh, the next, the next phrase in the verse there is that for those who love God, uh, we know that for those who love God, and this narrows the promise. It's not for everyone, but for those who love God. Uh, and in context, such a relationship has already been established, uh, in the adoption that we experience as sons, uh, back in, in verse 15. Uh, it says in 1 John 4 19 that we love God because he first loved us. And by adopting us as sons, he's shown us supremely his love for us. And so what's happening is a reflection of that, that for those who love God, who have been loved by him uh, through adoption, uh, this is what's true, what's coming here. Uh, and so that's next is all things. Uh, so that for those who love God, all things. And whenever you see all, uh, a good thing to think about is what is that with reference to? I had a professor who made this one of his theological dicta that all always has a context. Uh, and although looking at this, I wouldn't exclude anything from all things. Uh, what it has in view, especially, is uh, unpleasant things or seemingly bad things. Uh, if you continue on to verses 33 to 38, there are no fewer than 19 potential threats uh, to the believer. And so this is the particular all things that Paul has in view. So we know that for all, that for those who love God, all things, and the next phrase here, the next part of it is work together for good. Uh, and this is best rendered as in both the ESV and the legacy standard with all things as the subject of the verb work together. Uh, this teaches that contrary to appearances, and it might seem like all these threats listed out might not be good things, but contrary to that appearance, all things with an emphasis on all painful things are actively conspiring 
under the sovereign providence of God, because again, this is connected with the Spirit's intercession back in verse 26, all things are working together to do good, the opposite of harm to those who love God. Uh, next, reiterating that uh, narrowness of focus for those who are called. Uh, so those who love God would be the same as those who are called. And as in verse 30, which is still to come here, uh, this this calling finds its place there in verse 30 in the golden chain of redemption. And so we can understand it. It refers to the effectual call or the effective calling of everyone who is elect. So uh, you, it will be shown that you love God in response to his adopting work of you. And that's a demonstration of the fact that you're called. So all those who are called are all those who love God. And it is according to his purpose that things are working out for good. That's the last part of the verse. And this kind of points forward to what comes next, which is that golden chain of redemption. And in a nutshell, that's the sanctification of the believer, the further conformity uh, to Christ, to the image of Christ, so that everyone who's an adopted child of God would look like his firstborn son, Jesus Christ. So that's the definition of good. Uh, and so that's sort of a walk through yeah. the verse. That, that's so good. And I hope those of you that are listening were paying attention to that because everything that Jason just said can be observed simply by reading the text itself. And, and we want to encourage you, you know, we both have seminary degrees and, and, and those are a blessing, but simply by reading the text in the context, reading your text in the context and flow of the whole book, following the argument of the author, those are essential skills to develop if you want to minister God's word and biblical counseling in a way that is true to what God intended. And again, we don't want to misrepresent our, our God here. We, we want to accurately reflect what he inspired in the text. And so I think Jason is really helping us to uh, see that modeled well. So, so, so thank you, brother, for, for doing that. Um, would you say there's anything particularly difficult in this text? Uh, maybe some, some uh, pitfalls to look out for? Yeah, well, that's um, what you just said is right on. You know, all I basically did was look at it and, and you know, I, I looked a little bit at the Greek, but you could really get what I just walked through just from looking at the English. It's, right. it's pretty straightforward and pretty clear. Uh, and I did allude to something difficult in this. Um, and I actually taught it with a, a group of um, uh, college guys at TCU uh, a few weeks ago. And then they had a hard time when I when I pointed out and I alluded to this, but I didn't say it so specifically. When in verse 26, uh, it's talking about the Holy Spirit having knowledge both of us and of the Father's will, and him praying in ways that we don't know how to pray, I pointed out that the things that he's wanting to bring to pass in our lives are mostly going to be hard things. Hmm. And, and we even see that in context looking back to verses 16 and 17, where it talks about the results of our adoption and the spirit of adoption that we have as sons. And the fact that that is demonstrated if we suffer with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what Paul has in view is that that assurance is ministered to the believer, especially through difficult things. So the Holy Spirit is praying that you would go through things. And, you know, we see this actually in some forms of, you know, aberrant, we would say Christian theology, a desire to self-flagellate in order to bring about, you know, our own humbling. And and that is not something that the scripture calls for. And this would be part of the reason we don't 
we don't know how to ask for. We're not told to ask for pain or for trials, but the Holy Spirit brings those things, which in particular he uses, like Second uh, Corinthians 12 talks about how his power is made perfect in our weakness. Yeah. And that I would say it's not, you know, I think if you, if you reflect long enough on the relationship between verses 17 and 26 and 28 here, you're going to see that kind of jump out at you. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I say it's difficult is not the fact that it isn't evident from looking at that and meditating on it, but that it is hard uh, to accept the fact, you know, and that's, it, our flesh is resistant to this, that what we need most is difficulty. We need to suffer with him in order to show, show our adoption mm-hmm. as sons. So that's, that's hard. But I think on the other hand, uh, that can be one of the ways, and, and I actually have on the sheet where I wrote this all out, some cross-references. And we see this heavily in um, Psalm 119. From verses 50 to 75, it, it's four times that the psalmist says things like, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me, that before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So it's a testifying to the fact that the affliction is good. Uh, verse 71 in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Uh, and then the last one that I have here as a cross-reference is Job 33, uh, which, you know, if you're at all familiar with the book of Job, you know, Job suffered immensely. And his friends have all kind of gone the route of saying, okay, if you're suffering, it's directly for wrongdoing. And if you stop doing wrong, then you'll stop suffering. And Elihu comes in in chapter 33 and says, that's not how it is. Uh, and he has a whole section in chapter 33 where he says, God does this. Mm-hmm. He brings man suffering. And it's in order to bring him to a place, a breaking point where he's even near death. And then, and then Elihu points to an intercessor who intercedes for that man on the basis of an atonement. And then that man experiences, uh, in a sense, regeneration. You know, we know Job is a believer from the beginning, but he needs to go through that in chapter 42, later in Job, where he, he says, I, I heard of you by the hearing of the year, but now my eye sees you. I, I despise myself. And this is still in the midst of his suffering. He's been humbled to the point where he says, I reject myself, or I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Uh, and so that's something that God uses constantly and consistently to, to conform uh, the believer and, and even to take an unbeliever, humbling an unbeliever to the point where uh, they're desperate to cry out for the salvation that's only in Christ. And so Elihu says there in chapter 33 in Job, God does all these oftentimes mm-hmm. with man in order to keep his soul from the pit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, not that you just, uh, parachute in in every difficult situation and just right away launch into this. But even just that aspect of it, that you're not telling someone, okay, here's a silver lining in your suffering, but you're saying your suffering is actually a gift. Your father is showing his faithfulness to you. You know, it's rarely going to be the case that if you come in and tell someone your father is faithful, that they're going to think you're, you know, preaching at them in a way that's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good, Jason. Thank you for, for pulling in some of those cross references and how, um, how unique the Christian message is to bring hope and suffering. And, you know, we contrast that with health and wealth. We contrast that with, you know, the errors of Job's friends and to see that he is a kind father and that he does afflict in faithfulness, meaning it's reliable, right? We can trust it. 
um, you know, the way a loving father might correct his own son. Uh, Hebrews uses that allusion. So, um, well, you've already demonstrated how useful this text can be and, and why it can be so helpful. But maybe you can just expand on that a bit more. Why and, and maybe how uh, are the benefits of this text so useful uh, to those that are struggling? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've probably talked about this before, Keith, how everyone who comes to us, uh, you know, assuming that they're a believer, they are, they are a, a sinner, they are a saint, and they are a sufferer. And that's true across the board. I mean, that's something that is common to man. And you know, oftentimes when they come and land in our offices, and this is going to be the case for many of our listeners, someone lands with you for counseling they're coming because they have circumstances that are making them uncomfortable. They're having uh, difficulty. They're experiencing discomfort that's causing them to cry out for help and to be able to show them early and often that, that there is one who is sovereign over this and has designed it. And you're even indwelt by him and his spirit is interceding for you because you wouldn't have known to ask for this. But he knew it was perfect for you. And so you can have every hope that he is actually at this moment doing all of these things. And we haven't actually actually read this from verses 29 and 30. And it's, it's, it's because of this. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so what, what Paul is reassuring you of through these words and through this theology that includes this, this key verse is that if your glorification is already as good as done in God's eyes, but he has ordained for you to walk through this particular part of it, and he is working it to that ultimate end, and he won't ever fail to do that. And you can appeal to their past experiences of his his grace, his faithfulness, and to the truth of his promises, and how that has constantly and consistently been worked out among his people, both in the Bible and in church history, and really bring a lot of hope to a situation where there's discomfort. Yeah. No, so good. And and again, I, I hope you've you've modeled so well the difference between lobbing this verse out like a Hallmark greeting card line versus ministering it in its context, you know, a loving heavenly father who afflicts in faithfulness, uh, a spirit that prays and intercedes, uh, a salvation that's already been secured. And, and uh, the goal of that, even in the all things, is the conformity to Christ. So uh, these are the ways we communicate true biblically derived hope for, for believers that are suffering. So uh, thank you so much for modeling that in terms of how you handle the text and, and the great insights you gave. Uh, so glad to have you here for the conversation. Oh, thank you, Keith. Pleasure. Well, for more information about uh, Pastor Jason Cruz or um, the ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth, you can visit them at cbcfortworth.org. And uh, we'd like to invite you uh, this fall to the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, our annual training conference, and it will be hosted at Jason's Church this fall over three different weekends. 
we will have two tracks, a basic foundations in biblical counseling track, as well as an advanced topics track. And we would like to invite you to join us this fall for that training right here in Fort Worth, Texas. So for more information about that training and to sign up, as well as to access our hundreds of free resources related to discipleship and biblical counseling, you can visit us at our website at thecbcd.org.